from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Justice St. Rain on August 15, 2014. Justice has been a Baha'i since 1974 and started Special Ideas in 1981 after working at the Baha'i Publishing Trust and then going on Baha'i pilgrimage in Haifa, Israel. Special Ideas is an online marketplace devoted to creating materials to spread the Baha'i teachings. He has also written several books including Falling into Grace, The Trials and Triumphs of Being a Baha'i, Why Me? A Spiritual Guide to Growing Through Tests, My Baha'i Faith, and Love, Lust, and the Longing for God. I started the interview by asking Justice where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I am from a little town called Greencastle, Indiana. It's 40 miles west of Indianapolis. And even though there's a small university there, it is very conservative. Dan Quayle went to that university. It's very straight and narrow, very uh, very Greek. And my family wasn't. My mom was on the board of directors of the NAACP. She was a diehard liberal, very active in lots of social causes. Our whole family didn't fit in real well. When I was 10... My family encouraged me to let my hair grow, which doesn't sound like anything today, but this was 1966, and a boy with long hair in 1966 was about the equivalent of a boy walking down the street wearing a a Muslim turban today. It uh, was a a lightning rod for a lot of confusion and abuse. It was a, a challenge to grow up in a small conservative town being liberal and different, but it it taught me a lot. And what was spiritual life like growing up? Well, my mom was a very devout Lutheran, and so I went to church, Sunday school and church, every single week, sat through the whole sermon. I was uh, confirmed as a, a member of the Lutheran Church at 12, took communion. I really liked it until I hit puberty. At that point, I started questioning, as a lot of kids do, and realized that I really couldn't get behind the whole heaven and hell thing. So even though I I was spiritual in the sense that I believed in the spirit and believed in the soul, I called myself an atheist and claimed that I didn't believe in God from about 13 on which, again, was something you just don't do in little conservative <laughs> uh, Greencastle, Indiana, where everybody else is very strong Christian. And what were your interests growing up? I was a pretty nerdy kid the whole way through. Of course, you know, comic books, art a lot. I did you know, pastel drawings and charcoal drawings. In fact, when I was in, in sixth grade, I uh, earned my Christmas money by doing charcoal portraits of the kids in my class from their class pictures. So a lot of art, a lot of comic books, a lot of reading. I was one of the kids that stayed up until 
10, 11 o'clock at night reading books under the covers, um, devouring everything I could get my hands on. What did you do after high school? As I said, I was didn't follow the pack, and so I did not actually graduate from high school. I left high school a year early to go off to college, but between high school and college, I ran into this weird new religion. My best friend's best friend's sister had heard about it, and he came in all excited one day and started telling me about this. As I say, I, I, I considered myself an atheist, but when I, I talked to these people, and, and, and they were called Baha'is, uh, and told them that I didn't believe in God, they smiled nicely and said, well, that's okay, because we don't believe in the same God that you don't believe in. <laughs> and that kind of threw me for a loop. How there's force in the universe, but, you know, it's not like a big daddy in the sky. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. We believe that God is an unknowable essence, and we can't know the reality of God. So, whoa. Okay, well, that's that's a God I could I could I could believe in a God that you can't understand. It was a God that was was sending people to hell and was sitting on his throne, shaking his finger at people that that didn't make any sense to me. So, so I joined up at 17 years old, and then went off to college, where people were much less conservative. I fit in, but now had this new cause, this new life. So I went off to college, being a gung ho. Baha'i college club student. Hmm. What was your mother's reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? Well, her reaction to my becoming an atheist was that she figured I'd outgrow it, that it was just a phase I was going through. When I became a Baha'i, you know, it was a step forward from being an atheist. And as it turns out, my mother really was more of a, a diehard Lutheran in culture and in, in name more than in theology. So the theology of the Baha'i faith didn't bother her at all. It's just she really liked being a member of the Lutheran Church. So to the day she died, she liked the Baha'is, she agreed with the Baha'is, but by gosh, by golly, she was going to stay a Lutheran because that's what she was raised. So uh, it was actually a good thing for her when I became a Baha'i. What college did you go to? Went to a little uh, liberal arts school called Earlham College, and it has Quaker roots, which worked really well, because if you're going to try to find a Christian denomination that's closest to the Baha'is, it's probably the Quakers. You know, they look for the inner light, and they're not big into hell and damnation, and they're not into big into original sin. They're really, and they don't drink. So, uh, you know, there were obviously students on campus who were getting drunk anyway, but there was a much larger percentage of students on campus that basically, you know, they weren't into drugs and alcohol. They were interested in serving humanity. The American Friends Service Committee is very big into to serving humanity. So, as I say, it was a place that I actually felt like I fit in, which was nice. And what did you study or focus your studies on in college? I was pretty confused. Um, I started out studying, thinking I was going to be a psych major because I really wanted to figure out how the mind worked and how people work. Instead, I ran into the head of the art department, who it turned out had been my next door neighbor. And his daughter and I had been best friends when I was in kindergarten. And so 
uh, he took me under his wing. I was kind of the son he'd never had, at least for a year or two, and he was a father I never had, at least for a year or two. So I switched majors from psych to uh, to art, and it's going to be an art ed major, and then education became too complicated, so I became an art major. <laughs> I graduated from Earlham as an art major. And what did you do after that? Well, I thought I was going to... Um, make my fortune designing placemats with advertising on them. I was fairly naive, and that did not work out very well. But That, that a, was your uh, brainchild? or that, No, so I had, I had taken a year off from school at one point and worked as a printer. I, I was not sure I wanted to be a, an art teacher. I thought I might want to be a, a, a printer because I had done printing in high school. After a year acting as a printer running an offset press, I realized that I didn't really like printing. What I liked was seeing my own design come rolling off of a press. But that meant that uh, I had a background in printing, and I had printed these placemats off in Pennsylvania, and I thought that was a brilliant idea, and I was going to sell advertising on placemats, and it crashed and burned. Mm. But in the meantime... (laughs) I was, as I said, I was gung-ho Baha'i, and I was spending all my spare time travel teaching. So what is that for folks who aren't familiar with that concept? Uh, with gung-ho? or <laughs> <laughs> I think people understand gung-ho, but maybe not so much travel teaching. Um, Baha'is don't try to force anyone into becoming Baha'is, but we're strongly encouraged to share the Baha'i teachings with anyone who's willing to listen. And, you know, the, the teachings are, are pretty nice if you haven't run into them. But if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably run into them somewhere along the line. But, you know, the, the oneness of mankind, the oneness of religion, race unity, uh, equality of men and women, these are principles that I firmly believe. I had, I had been raised with them. As I say, my mom was, was on the board of the NAACP. So I was raised with these principles. So becoming a Baha'i was just an outlet for me to share them with people. So I put together musical slideshows. I would take pictures of smiling children, happy people, and take music, you know, James Taylor and, and Melanie and, and Seals and Crofts, and I'd stick the two together, and then I'd give a little talk about love and unity and how we all ought to get along. And so I was traveling around in my spare time, giving these firesides, giving these little slideshows, and I went up to Chicago area, I was invited to give my slideshow in Wilmette, uh, which is where the Baha'i House of Worship is. And one of the people who attended... This is Wilmette, Illinois. Wilmette, yeah, I'm sorry. Wilmette, Illinois, north of Chicago, liked my slideshow and said, you know, you would be perfect for this job they have at the Baha'i Publishing Trust. The Baha'i Publishing Trust is is the organization that publishes the books of the Baha'i writings and, and stuff. And they had just started a new department... It was developing special, what they called special materials. It was going to be music and slideshows and videos and posters and things like that. And, and she was working for the publishing trust, and she thought I'd be perfect for this this job um, as the assistant to the person doing this. I thought, wow, this is right up my alley. I mean, all through college, I was the one making the posters, and I was making T-shirts, and I was making buttons, and I thought, this is great. So I applied for the job. And they interviewed me, and they saw that I had a background in printing and that I was was willing to work for Peanuts, and, <laughs> and they didn't hire me. I was very disappointed. But a, a month or so later, I got a call from them. They said, you know, we really didn't want you as the assistant for the special materials development department, 
But with your background in printing, you'd be perfect for a special materials production department. And I'm thinking, I don't want to produce other people's stuff. I want to, I want to be the one designing them. And they said, listen, if you come up and work for us, we promise you will be on the inside track. You'll be able to offer your ideas and your designs and your artwork. And, you know, you'll be right here in the middle of everything. What do you say? I said, okay. So I took this job at, at the Baha'i Publishing Trust. I knew about printing. I didn't know anything about print, producing anything else. You know, I didn't know anything about jewelry. I didn't know anything about slides or music or, you know, videos or anything like this. But... I took the job and I learned. When I when I took the job, I was scared to death to talk to people on the telephone like this or anyone else. I was really nervous around people who like salesmen intimidated me. So hmm. I spent a year helping produce materials for the Baha'is. The problem was I went up there wanting to produce teaching materials buttons, balloons, posters, pamphlets, things that I would be using if I were out in the field trying to, to share with people what these teachings were. But the people who were in charge of developing materials were making you know, children's music and puzzles and rings and not a single teaching item. There were no pamphlets being made. There were no teaching posters. There were decorative posters for children's rooms, but no teaching materials, no no display materials, no stuff for fair booths, nothing. And it was very frustrating for me. Mm-hmm. So after a year, I said, you know, I love you guys. This mm-hmm. has been fun, but I just I I can't I can't do this anymore. I have to teach. I've got to be out there. Yeah, you know, I had no intention of starting a company. I really didn't. But what I wanted to do was travel around with my slideshow again. And I had a design, which I don't know how long, how long have you been a Baha'i? Since 71. Okay, so you, you probably remember this design because it was the most popular design in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. It was a design that had a black dove and a white dove that came oh, together yeah. and made a heart in the middle. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And Baha'is believe in race unity, and this was a visual representation of race unity. And everybody I showed it to absolutely loved this design. And they wanted T-shirts, and they wanted posters, and they wanted pamphlets. Everybody loved it, except the people who could actually produce it. Mm-hmm. So the Publishing Trust was not interested in it. The Race Unity Committee was not interested in it. The Proclamation Committee was not interested in it. Nobody was interested in it, except my friends. So I decided I was going to make a, a run of posters. Now that I knew how to do this, and I had, I had made friends who were printers, I decided I'm going to make some posters and some buttons, and I'm going to sell them to pay for the gas so I can travel around the country. I, as, I was very naive, even at this point. I'm like, you know, 23 or something like this, and I had no idea how the world worked. But I was going to, you know, sell you know 20, 30 dollars worth of posters everywhere I went, and pay for the gas to the next town. And then I'd give talks and do a slideshow, and I'd sell another 20, 30 dollars worth of posters, and then I'd move to the next town. That was my plan, brilliant plan. But the week before my last day at the Baha'i Publishing Trust, I got a phone call from uh, what we call the pilgrimage office. Baha'i Holy Land is in Israel, and that's where a lot of, of the historic activities in the Baha'i faith took place. And so Baha'is 
want to go there and visit the places where Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, or Abdul Baha'i, his son, uh, lived and were buried. I had put my name in to go, to, to make a reservation to go, but it usually takes about three, four years because there's a long waiting list. And I get a phone call, and they say, we've had a cancellation. Do you have your passport? I said, uh, yeah. I said, well, it's in two weeks. Can you go? <laughs> I said, sure. Wonderful. And so I went on pilgrimage, and I got to see the holy shrines and say lots of prayers. There was only one problem. The money I had saved to print the posters that I was going to sell on my travel teaching trip went to fly me to Israel and back. So I'm Israel. I have contracted to print these posters, and they've already made the film and plates, so they, I can't undo it, and I had no money. And so I sit in the shrine and say, okay, God, you know, what do you want me to do now? And the obvious answer came to me. I said, well, you can't travel teach, but what you can do is you can take those posters and, and start a little company. And I sat over coffee with my, a couple of my fellow pilgrims in Haifa and dreamed up this idea for a company that would produce all the things that I thought needed to be produced and weren't. So that, I came home and I started a company called Special Ideas, and that was 1981. So that was your seed money for Special Ideas. <laughs> well, yeah, what, what was left... Um, from coming back from pilgrimage, I, I actually I didn't even I didn't even have that. I I talked to the printers and I said, "Listen, this is what's happened. I don't have money. I I know you've made the plate and the film. I don't have the money." They said, "We'll give you we'll give you 90 days." And so they printed the posters, and I gathered all the contacts that I had made from traveling around the country. You know, I had traveled. During my college days, I'd traveled through New York, I'd traveled down to Florida, I'd traveled all over the country. And all the people I had visited, I collected their names, so I put together a mailing list of about 120 people. And I sent out a flyer and I said, I've got you know, posters and pamphlets, buttons and t-shirts. Please buy them. And they did. And I started going to conferences and selling them at conferences. And I say, from, from there, it's, it's grown. I'd never expected to do any of this, but in retrospect, there's nothing else on the entire planet that I would have wanted to do or that I was prepared to do better than this. Yeah. Well, looking at it from my point of view and you reviewing what your interests were growing up and being an artist and wanting to create and being involved in printing, it just sort of seems to add up. It does. You know, when, when I was in high school, I I made spare money by tie-dyeing T-shirts. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I sell a high T-shirt. Right, and you were, I, you said that you did charcoal drawings to make them. I did charcoal drawings, and yeah. In, in, yeah, in, in elementary school. So right. yeah, I, as I say, nobody else was surprised. This yeah, is, I mean, you were an intra- you were an entrepreneur back back in the day. And you know, the funny thing is, I know, you know I always thought of myself as being a wild and crazy artist. A funny story. When I was living in, in New Mexico, I, uh, I was smitten by a woman in from Santa Fe, and you know she was this hippie, you know, wild, crazy, you know, uh, dressed up on as a, a forest elf on Earth Day, 
and I thought, you know, she would be just the perfect match for me. And she looked at me and said, why on earth are you attracted to me? I said, well, because, you know, we've got so much in common. She said, are you kidding? You're a member of an organized religion. You're a businessman. You don't do drugs. You know, you're straight arrow. <laughs> you're kidding me? A long-haired hippie freak from <laughs> 1966? I have a straight and arrow? And I thought, well, you know, actually, you know, compared to long-haired hippie, the, the wild crazies in Santa Fe, I am a straight arrow businessman. And it just completely changed my sense of who I was from yeah. being a, a rebellious, wild hippie to being, you know, an artist, businessman, publisher. That's the other thing I, I used to say. Well, what, what? Well, I'm an artist. Now I tell people I'm a publisher. You know, when you tell people you're an artist, they expect you to kind of be starving and and, <laughs> and run around barefoot with a beard. You tell people you're a publisher, and they figure you know you sit by a computer and you run finances. Mm-hmm. So I'm now a publisher. The, the other the other half of that, of course, is is when I started that. The the first product I made, I told you I made posters, but that's not entirely true. I make poster pamphlets. I had this idea that when you go to a county fair and people people give out stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Baha'is were sitting there giving out pamphlets, and and they could stand there all week, and if they gave away twenty pamphlets, they were thrilled. And I looked around and said, people don't want pamphlets; they want something pretty. So I designed these these United Dove posters I was telling you about. They were something you'd roll up with a ribbon and you'd give them away as a poster. What the people didn't know is that on the back of the poster was a full pamphlet. So they were taking a poster, but when they took it home and unrolled it and to put tape on it to stick it up on their wall, there'd be this whole series of quotations about race unity and the oneness of mankind. And even if they never read it, when they stuck it up on their wall, every day that they looked at it, subconsciously, they'd see the word Baha'i, and they knew that on the back of it, it was talking about race unity, and that mm-hmm. the Baha'is believed in race unity. And if that's all that happened, that just it went from Baha'i being some weird name to Baha'is being something kind of spiritual that believes that we're all one, that was light years ahead of them walking by a booth and not taking anything. So mm-hmm. I started out by producing poster pamphlets that had 90% quotations on the back with just a few lines of introduction. And I went from that to doing poster pamphlets that would be 80% commentary and 10 or 20% quotations. And then I went from poster pamphlets to writing pamphlets. And then I went from pamphlets to writing booklets and from booklets to writing books. So again, I never had any intention of being an author, but everybody else looked at me and go, well, of course, you were writing papers back in college. (laughs) You're a writer. We can see that. I didn't see it. It was this slow process of going from collecting quotations to writing books. So that's a great segue into reviewing some of the works that you have written. What was the first book that you wrote? The first book I wrote was called Falling into Grace. And again, I didn't write it because I thought I was an author. I wrote it because I had been a Baha'i at this point, uh, a little over 20 years, and I had sadly watched a lot of my friends come into the Baha'i faith 
and then turn around and walk back out of the Baha'i faith. And I knew that, that this was something we weren't talking about, that it wasn't easy to join a new religion, and that after 20 years of watching this happen and facing my own struggles, I had some insights into why people came in, why they left, and what they might be able to do to change their perspective so that they could be true to themselves and still stay in the Baha'i community. So basically, I just collected all the crazy things that had happened to me you know, in the 20 years as a Baha'i and all the things that had bothered me or bothered my friends or scared people or freaked people out and put them down and said, okay, you know, you become a Baha'i, there's a chance you're going to run into this. You know, you become a Baha'i, there's a chance you're going to run into that. And when you do, it's okay. You know, this is how I dealt with it. This is how you can deal with it. And you can get through it and you can stay Baha'i. And the benefits are worth the hassle. They really are. It's interesting. It's something that maybe you want to give to someone just after they decide they be, they want to be a Baha'i. Uh, well, I wrote it for people to hand to people right after they became a Baha'i. But then all these long-term Baha'is you know, started writing me emails and letters saying, Oh, my God, no one's ever said this before. You know, I thought I was the only one who felt this way. I'm so glad I read this. Now I feel comfortable being Baha'i again. And they were giving them to people who had been Baha'is and left, and they were coming back and becoming active again. So it it was very confirming for me. So do you have a passage that you'd like to share with us from Falling into Grace? Here's just a a little piece from from the introduction to to give you a, a sense of the flavor. Uh, The book, as I say, is called Falling Into Grace. To live with the constant awareness that you are being loved and blessed by God is to live in a state of grace. But, contrary to popular opinion, living in grace does not require us to be especially holy, obedient, or successful. Quite the contrary, in order to live in a state of grace, we must constantly stumble and fall. The reason is simple. Grace is the undeserved love and blessings of God. While we receive God's love and blessings at all times and under all conditions, we spend most of our time fooling ourselves into thinking that we have earned them through our own efforts. It is only when we are aware that we are being loved and blessed before, during, and after our constant failures that we experience the feeling of living in a state of grace. In other words, we must slip and fall in order to feel the hand of God pick us up and carry us to grace. And really, that's, that's the, in a sense, the theme of most of my writing, is that it's okay to be imperfect. One of the things I realize about being a Baha'i is that most Baha'is, I mean, they're very spiritual people, which means that they already have a strong sense of shame. They're trying really hard to do what's right, and when they make mistakes, they feel bad. Well, for people who don't have a strong sense of shame, the way you you want them to encourage them to be good is by shaming them when they do something wrong, and then they straighten up and they do it right. 
if a person has a strong sense of shame already, when they've done something wrong, they're already feeling horrible. And if you lay another layer of guilt and shame onto that, it overwhelms them and it just chases them away. So for Baha'is, the standard, the Baha'i standard is so high that people come in to the Baha'i faith and then they realize that they can't live up to that standard. And rather than admit that they're just, they can't do it, they're failing, they're frail humans, and, you know, whatever it is, maybe they can't stop drinking, maybe they can't stop, you know, having sex outside of marriage, maybe they just, you know, maybe they're, you know, they feel guilty because they aren't saying their prayers or whatever it is. Rather than knowing that that's part of the process, they, they kind of slink off and decide they just aren't good enough. And so that's what this book is about, that you're good enough. God loves you just the way you are. And all these challenges are just part of the process. That is very encouraging. Is the second book that you wrote called Why Me? A Spiritual Guide to Growing Through Tests? Yeah, yeah. And and that one was written for people who were not already Baha'i with kind of the, the same message, but even even more clearly spelled out and explained explaining the the larger context in our culture when something bad happens we subconsciously or consciously have this sense that we must have done something wrong that it's our fault that we're being punished for something and this is this is really strong in our culture so the idea that bad things happen because god loves us rather than because God is trying to punish us, just does not make any sense to people. So this book is explaining how it is that a God who loves us lets bad things happen to us and, and other people, how it really is a, a mercy, not, a, not a, a punishment. I do want you to share a passage, but it does bring up the interesting conundrum that bad things happen to us because we make that bad decisions and then bad things happen to us totally independent of what our actions are. I talk about there being four different sources of tests. There's tests that we give ourselves through our own, by accident, you know, through our own poor decisions. And to be honest, that's like 80% of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's tests that God gives us that are designed to help us grow. And there are tests. The one that people think most tests are is that they are punishments. And then the the fourth test is one that a lot of people don't think about, and that is tests that we choose to take on ourselves so that we can choose to grow. In other words, we take the hard road. We take the hard route, exactly. We, we, the, the foundation of all this hinges on understanding the purpose of life. And again, that's, this, this is a theme that runs throughout all of my books, it is what is the purpose of life? The purpose of life is not to be happy and have a, have a good time. The purpose of life is to develop our virtues. And once you understand that that's the purpose, that's why we're here, everything else makes sense because everything we face is an opportunity to develop our virtues. And if we choose to develop our virtues, then we are testing ourselves. 
if God throws something at us that forces us to to develop our virtues, then God is testing us. But it's because not because He's punishing us, because He wants us to develop that virtue. He wants us to have access to that wonderful quality, and those virtues make life nicer. They make life better. It, it does make us happy, but not necessarily in the short run, but in the long run. So would you like to share a passage from Why Me? Yeah, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll t- share two short ones. One is kind of a, a continuation of just what I just said. If the purpose of life is for us to develop virtues, and the purpose of tests is to help us in that process, then in order for us to pass our tests, we must want to develop virtues. It is not enough to believe in virtues, to understand the value of virtues, to be able to recognize, name, spell, and categorize virtues. We must love virtues. We must love virtues more than we hate the discomfort of difficult situations. We must love generosity more than we love money. We must love honesty more than we love comfort. We must love peace more than we love power. We must love understanding more than we love being right. The hardest one for people is the question of punishment because we everybody talks about punishment. And and here I I say something pretty radical that that people really struggle with. You might wonder if there were any time when God's punishment might go beyond our mere perception, when God really did want us to suffer, could we do something so bad that God would not forgive us? Would God ever do something so horrible to us that there was no possible way to turn it into a growth experience? No. When it comes down to the essence of life, the only thing of any value to us in the universe, and I mean the only thing of value to us in the entire universe, is our own capacity to reflect the virtues of God within our hearts. These virtues are the essence of our true reality, and without them we are nothing. Once God has given us the capacity to manifest His qualities, the only source of harm, pain, or punishment in the entire universe is our own free will capacity to ignore those virtues and remain empty. In other words, we are the only ones who can punish ourselves. So, if we knowingly are aware that we should be kind but we we choose to be unkind knowing that we should be kind then somehow that can manifest itself in some kind of test well it, it we end up less kind and that, and and that's like you know saying uh, you know i'm i'm a rose bush and i'm just going to have one less rose the punishment for that then is that one we are less kind And two, the next time when we need kindness in order to grow further, we won't have as much access to it. So it's kind of a self-perpetuating downward spiral when we make those choices. And and we aren't necessarily conscious of the choices, unfortunately. But that's part part of the process is to become more conscious of 
the fact that it isn't God punishing. It's that we are choosing, and we choose every single moment of every day. Everything we do is a choice to either manifest a virtue or glide along and not grow. And that's not evil. You know, it's not evil to not grow. It's just, you know, <laughs> it's not why we're here. Yeah, it sort of reminds me of the concept of karma, that, mm-hmm. that what we give, we then receive. What we give is what we are. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily for some future you know, recompense. Benefit, it right. is it's just being us. And the worst thing we can do is to not be us. And the, the worst punishment we can inflict upon ourselves is to not be the best us that we can be. It's just that simple. The next book that you wrote was called My Baha'i Faith? Yeah, and you may have noticed this, this trend. I'm, I'm moving more and more towards actually being direct about the Baha'i Faith. But when I wrote My Baha'i Faith, the favorite introduction to the Baha'i Faith was a book called uh, Baha'u'llah and the New Era, which is a wonderful textbook. But it was written in the 1910s, maybe as late as 1920. And the language is of the 1920s. And the structure is of the 1920s. And so it's a lovely book, but it just does not speak to people today. And so I wrote a book called My Baha'i Faith, which is in a conversational tone. And it's directed basically to people like like myself, uh, people who were a raised Christian in, in the United States, but were feeling uncomfortable with the whole heaven, hell, you know, you've got to jump through hoops in order to make God a happy a- aspect of religion, but didn't want to toss religion out entirely. They just they wanted something that made more sense. So I wrote my Baha'i Faith. It's called A Personal Tour of the Baha'i Teachings. And I start with talking about an alternate view of salvation. And so uh, let me let me just read a, a real quick paragraph or two from, from the beginning of the book. Oh, not the very, very beginning, but uh, page four. What am I being saved from? Like Christ, Baha'u'llah teaches that God wants, us, wants to save me. God wants to save me, but not from some outside force like the devil or some external punishment like hell and not even from my own supposedly innate sinfulness, like original sin. God's great desire for me is to save me from my complete and utter ignorance of my own true self. God's goal is to help me redefine who I am, why I was created, and how I can achieve my fullest potential. God wants me to learn, grow, love, and be happy. If we see a plant that does not grow, we call it dead. Likewise, a human soul that does not grow and learn and become what God meant for it to be is spiritually dead. There is no worse punishment than this. Baha'u'llah says, True loss is for him whose days have been spent in utter ignorance of his self. So that's what it means to be saved to know who you really are. I explain, you know, the, the name Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah is the founder of the Baha'i faith. And it's Bahu, Bahu'at, Baha'u. 
It sounds strange. It sounds foreign. So when I describe Baha'u'llah's life, I don't go into a lot of detail, but I relate every step of his life to the life of Jesus or Moses or one of the people that the Western world feels comfortable with. So, you know, as I say, when when Baha'u'llah received his revelation, it's like when Christ received the gift of the Holy Spirit and the dove came down, and we we celebrate that. When uh, he was uh, thrown in prison, it was when like when Christ was was taken before Pontius Pilate and and whipped. There are parallels, and so by putting it in terms and the language that people are familiar with, Baha'u'llah is not some strange guy from from uh, the Middle East any more than Jesus was a strange guy from the Middle East. They they uh, they lived you know uh, within a, a a few miles of each other. Um, separated by 1,800, 1,900 years. So that's that's my Baha'i faith. You know, it reminds me of how Baha'u'llah's son, Abdu'l-Baha, came to the United States to f- expose Americans to his father's religion. He always referred to Jesus Christ and his teachings. He was, in a lot of ways, he taught indirectly, in other words, not mentioning the Baha'i faith directly, but really sort of teaching the principles of the Baha'i faith through the concept of Jesus and what Jesus did and what the disciples did and, and so on. So oh, Absolutely. Yeah. If you read his talk before in the temple, before the, the a Jewish congregation, he barely mentions Baha'u'llah. He teaches Christ. He says, you were lovers of Moses. But if you love the virtues of Moses, you will see those virtues in, in his holiness, his holiness, Jesus Christ. The love and respect that the Baha'is have for Jesus is just staggering. And Abdu'l-Baha reflected that in, in so many of his talks. When he spoke at the Bowery Mission, he talks about, you know, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. You know, he didn't say blessed are the rich. You know, he talked about how, how Jesus was a son of God, and yet he didn't have a place to lay his head. He was poor. And and how it was his his virtues that, that made him rich, and virtues the virtues that that uh, he manifested that we're trying to, to follow ourselves, you know, 2,000 years later. So, yeah, he, he, he taught you know, the Baha'i faith definitely as, as, a, as a reflection of, uh, of Christ's life in today's world. And then I guess the, the last book that you've written is called Love, Lust, and the Longing for God? Yeah, and, and this one is, in, in some ways, it's my most spiritual and it's my least Baha'i. Um, I don't talk about the Baha'i faith, though I use a, a couple quotations here and there. But it's more about, well, discovering who we really are. And an idea that, that I, I came across kind of from, from being a Baha'i and, and putting two and two together over the years about what our emotions are about and how they relate to the, to the purpose of life. The, the essence of, of the, the book is really, really very simple. It's that our emotions, the sensations we call emotions, which really guide our lives often more than, than our intellect, we like to think that we, we make decisions about what we're going to do based on what makes sense, but most of our actions are guided by our, 
our emotions instead. And yet we, you, you try to find out, well, what are emotions? You know, and philosophers have been arguing about it for, for thousands of years. Uh, you would think with, you know, psychology and, and philosophy and religion that the answer to, you know, what is love and what are emotions would be something, it is common knowledge, what everybody knows what emotions are and everybody knows what love is. But in reality, they they don't. And so I, I dug into the Baha'i writings to try to figure out, you know, what what is this all about? And and this is this is what I came up with. And and this is from uh, the beginning of of uh, the uh, Love Lesson and the Longing for God. It's actually three books put together. Uh, and the first book is The Secret of Emotions. And so this is from the beginning of The Secret of Emotions. This is what I believe. Our emotions are spiritual sensations that tell us about the presence or absence of virtues in our lives. And virtues are the attributes of God expressed in the world of creation. Since our purpose in life is to develop these virtues within ourselves, it is only natural that we have been given the tools to recognize them when they are present. Not only is it natural that we would be given this amazing ability to perceive our spiritual environment, but it is absolutely necessary. How else could we be expected to love the attributes of God in the world if we were not given the ability to perceive them? If all we had to rely on was our intellectual capacity, then love, kindness, beauty, harmony, and joy would be dry intellectual or philosophical exercises outside the experience of the vast majority of humanity. We all know this is not how life works. The ability to recognize kindness, patience, and fairness is not bestowed upon those with superior intellects. It is given to those with pure hearts. The essence of my insight is that our hearts tell us about the presence of virtues. The Baha'is have this wonderful book Baha'u'llah wrote called The Hidden Words. It's a, a collection of very short statements, each of which is just contains an, an amazing amount of wisdom. And the very first hidden word says, O son of spirit, possess a pure, kind, and radiant heart that thine may be a sovereignty ancient, imperishable, and everlasting. And what I came to believe is that having a pure heart means a heart that is capable of directly perceiving the presence or absence of virtues in a situation without our ego getting in the way. So if someone is kind, our heart perceives that kindness. If a person is honest, there's a part of us can sense that honesty. And if a person is lying to us, then if we have a pure heart, there's a part of us that can sense that dishonesty, the lack of the virtue. But if we don't develop that skill, then we have to use our, you know, it's good to use the mind and the heart together, but the mind without the heart is easily misled, and the heart without the mind is easily misled. But you put the two together, and you have the, the heart sensation that tells you what your heart tells you is present, and then your mind observes the externals of the situation and sees 
what it looks like is present, and if the two agree, then you're in pretty good luck. If they disagree, then you've got to figure out what's really going on. Does that make any sense to you? It does. It does. You said there were two other parts of the book? Well, I start out with the secret of emotions. That kind of lays this groundwork that our hearts generate sensations. And the problem is that we're not taught to identify them accurately. And so many, many of the problems we go through in life are because our culture has told us that when our heart responds in a certain way, it means this, when it really means that. And so we respond to situations completely inaccurately because we don't know the language. What people tell you is, oh, listen to your heart, listen to your heart, follow your heart. What they don't tell you is that the heart speaks speaks a different language, and no one tells you what that language is. So your heart has a strong sensation, and your mind goes, oh, look, my heart's having a strong sensation. It must mean something. I have no idea what it means. It's like someone, you know, screaming at the top of their lungs in Spanish, and you don't speak Spanish. You know it's important. You know they really want you to listen, but you have no idea what, what it means. So my my goal in writing the books is, is to, to give people some insights into when your heart generates these sensations, what it might mean and what it might feel like, because different virtues feel differently. Uh, and I'll tell you about the, the second and third book in a, in a second, but let me let me just give you an example because this this is important and if people can grok this idea I'm sorry I just fell into science fiction language grok is not a Baha'i word grok comes from (laughs) science fiction book Uh, to understand this idea so for example uh, let let me read you a list of words compassion confidence courage Faith, joy, kindness, love, respect, serenity, wonder, peace, nobility. Okay. Was that a list of virtues or was that a list of emotions? Can you feel serenity? Can you feel noble? Can you feel joy? Can you feel kindness? Can you behave with joy? Behave with kindness? Behave with serenity? Behave with nobility? So, all of our lives, we have been using the same words for virtues and emotions, and yet not consciously acknowledging the fact that when we feel this feeling, we are either practicing or are in the presence of that virtue. And part of the reason why we have, it's taken us so long to figure this out, is because the feelings that we tend to focus on are the feelings that are not generated by a virtue's presence, but the feeling that's generated by its absence. So when we think of of feelings, we think of fear and anger and disgust. Psychology has has been studying emotions for a long time, but they like to study the ones that are easy to study. And so they study the ones that give you a physical reaction. 
and our physical reaction to things are often the strongest physical reactions are to the absence of virtues instead of the presence of virtues. And so the the five virtue uh, five uh, emotions that, that uh, psychology tends to uh, study are fear, anger, disgust, sorrow. Oh, oh yeah, oh, and that and that one good one, the uh, love and uh, sometimes happiness. <laughs> and, and so when those are what you're focusing on, it's no wonder that we don't notice that they relate to virtues. So I made a chart that says uh, has a list of virtues, a list of the feelings that we have when they're present, and a list of the feelings we have when they're absent. So, for example, if we are in the presence of justice or fairness, we feel satisfaction. If there's uh, justice is lacking, then we feel anger. So anger tells us that we're in a situation in which justice is needed. If we uh, are in the presence of trust, then we feel trustworthiness. But if we're lacking trust, we feel paranoid. If we are in the presence of faith, then we feel assured. If faith is absent, then we feel adrift and anxious. So uh, those are just a few. But when you start looking at your feelings and then going, well, okay, if I'm feeling this, what virtue is present or what virtue is absent? It doesn't just inform you about what the feeling is, but it gives you a course of action. Oh, I'm feeling this. This virtue is absent. Therefore, if I want to change the feeling, I can add this virtue to the situation and it will change the feeling. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Very interesting. So I know we're running low on time. So the secret of emotions kind of forms a foundation of the idea of, of what we're here for and how we can can better understand our emotions. The second part is called Four Tools of Emotional Healing. And in that, I, I list four virtues that I feel are kind of at the core, that if you can really work on these four virtues, then the other virtues will be easier to develop. And those are honesty, compassion, faith, and drum roll, please. <laughs> oh, very important, forgiveness. Because forgiveness uh, relates to injustice and anger. Uh, honesty is about being not just being honest with other people, but about being honest with ourselves and being able to disclose. And I talk a lot about going to 12-step meetings or, uh, or therapy or finding places where it's safe to self-disclose and, and journaling and things like this because we hide so much from ourselves. And you cannot develop a virtue if you don't know it's lacking. If you don't know what's missing, you don't know what to add. And our emotional lives are mostly a response to what was missing and if we can't be open and honest about what's been missing in our lives, then we, then we can't heal it. So honesty is about becoming real about who we are. Forgiveness is forgiving ourselves for all those things that we've been hiding from ourselves and forgiving other people for not teaching us how noble and wonderful we really are convincing us that we're, we have original sin or we're innately evil and all that, that good stuff. Compassion takes it the next step to help us connect to other people, to see ourselves and other people and, and be able to 
have an emotion with them. When two people have a shared experience of a virtue, then their emotions are in tune. So it, it brings people together. Intimacy is a result of a shared experience of, of virtue. And so compassion teaches us how to share emotions with other people and to learn from them, to learn from their experience and their perception of reality. And then finally, faith, which I don't talk a lot about in that book because I talk about it so much in Why Me, and I basically say, okay, faith, you've got you've to believe that it's all going to be okay and that God's on your side and that the world is good and that, that you can handle this. And if you question that, then go read Why Me. Uh, <laughs> And, and then uh, the third book uh, is called A Longing for Love. And it takes all this other stuff and says, okay, now that you've worked on your, yourself and now that you understand you know, what love is and what emotions are all about, now you want to have healthy relationships. And so how do you find healthy relationships and how do you avoid addictive behaviors? I mean, it's good for anybody, especially anyone looking for a relationship, but it's particularly addressed to people who are dealing with uh, addictive relationship patterns that keep getting into bad relationships. Right now, you know, in the news is all this about you know, the football player that, that beats his, his fiance, and why people s- stick around in abusive relationships. This addresses a lot of that kind of issue. You know, why are we attracted to the wrong people? How do we become attracted to the right people? And how do we heal these wounds so that we can start having healthy relationships? So that's a, the third in the series. Justice, I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us. I'm sorry we've run out of time, but I want to, again, thank you for sharing your story and and your work. Well, time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> and this has been a lot of fun for me. You, you've, you've made it very relaxing and very easy to chat, so I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Justice St. Rain, founder of the online marketplace devoted to creating materials to spread the Baha'i teachings called Special Ideas and author of several books. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.